think we all agree that what parenting is really about, but it's sure easy to forget that when nobody will get their dang shoes on and get in the car, you know, like it's so easy to forget. And to me, I feel like if I were to really just put a few words, what parenting is, it's keeping the big picture in mind, especially in the small moments when it's really easy to forget. In our society that rewards, celebrates, and reinforces chasing perfection, it can be challenging to redefine your personal and your parenting goals to strive simply for growth. Yet, if we aspire to raise a generation unburdened by the crippling pursuit of perfection, not to mention make our own life a lot more enjoyable, it is a path well worth exploring. Joining me today is Monica Packer. Monica is the founder of About Progress, and she is a podcaster, a coach, and a self-described recovering perfectionist. In today's episode, she'll not only share her own journey with perfectionism, but also talk about how she empowers others to break free from this all-or-nothing mindset. So get ready for an enlightening conversation as we explore embracing imperfections, fostering genuine connections in your relationships, and finding fulfillment in the small wins as you navigate the messy middle ground in parenting. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hello. So today we've got Monica Packer here and I'm I'm just so excited for this conversation. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, I am too. So we connected because we were both uh, presenters or panelists on the Raising Emotionally Healthy Families Summit. And you have this amazing talk about perfectionism and you have a podcast all about perfectionism. And like, can you tell us a little bit about like what you do and how you, how you came to be doing what exactly it is that you do? Of course. So my podcast is called About Progress and it began because I was trying to work on leaning into a new way of growing, which for me meant focusing on progress, not perfection. And for all of my life, there was no in-between. It's an all or nothing. Either you go after and give it your all or you don't do anything. And I aspired to be a perfectionist um, in ways that I thought were really healthy and praiseworthy and good. And when I was in my early 20s, I crashed and burned with my mental health. And um, then I spent the next 10 years just staying on the sidelines of my life because I was terrified of getting back to that place, um, where my Mm. life really was at stake. Like that was what, what it had amounted to with my mental health. And what I've discovered though, is that it was, I was still a perfectionist. I didn't know I counted because I was on the nothing side. And Mm. I had this amazing therapist who pointed that out to me that I was a perfectionist. And I was like, what now? (laughs) Because I haven't done anything. I haven't even made goals in like 10 years. And she helped me understand that that was still me being a perfectionist. And as I, you know, took that in and I realized she was right for starters. I also realized how perfectionism had hijacked every part of my life. And whether I was the overachieving or the underachieving kind or anything in between, And one of the biggest ways it impacted my life was my relationships, including Mm -hmm. with my children. And at this time, I was approaching 30 and I had three children then, and um, they were quite close to age, four and under. And um, my own perfectionistic tendencies were getting in the way of me being the mom I knew I wanted to be for these kids. And so I actually am a personal development person. I'm not a parenting person. But in my process of working on myself, I can tell you the number one area of my life that has improved has been my parenting and has been my relationships with my children. 
Mm. I'm a way better parent now than I was when I was navigating life as a perfectionist. And we can talk way more about what that looks like in parenting, but that's the nutshell of my story and how my podcast about progress was part of that experiment of leaning into trying to be mediocre at things and be okay with being mediocre. And seven years later, and I'm still sticking with it and it's changed my life and changed my family's life too. That's amazing. I feel like that is a really, we have to put the link to that in the show description and the show notes because I feel like I, I, I think there is such a profound overlap between understanding perfectionism as a general concept and all the ways it shows up in our lives because I think it's pretty, it's pretty everywhere. And we grow up in a society that I think actually breeds a lot of perfectionism in in people. Um, especially women um, and especially moms. <laughs> I would even mm-hmm. pinpoint that even more. Um, and, we, and, you know, and perfectionism is sneaky. Like I said, I aspired to it. I thought that was a good thing to try to be, to try to be on that pedestal and being so good at everything because I'm trying to be a good person. But really what it was, was a misplacement of identity. And, you know, I didn't realize putting my identity on my outcomes was like a lose-lose, lose-lose. <laughs> I, I mean, you could just do that into perpetuity situation. Yeah. There was no winning. There was no bolstering of my identity. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've done this work, but like, where are the roots of that perfectionism? Like for you, like I'm assuming it didn't come on in, you know, adulthood. It probably the seeds must have been planted early. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was the overachieving perfectionist, I was the stereotypical, like what people imagine when they think of perfectionist. And I was that throughout my whole teen years and young adult years. And, you know, I, funnily enough, I don't have this big sob story. <laughs> you know, a lot of times people have a lot of trauma in their past that has informed them trying to seek a sense of stability and that identity piece Mm -hmm. that they can prop up through their outcomes. And for me, I mean, it really wasn't something like that. And maybe more people could relate to that than we would maybe think that Mm -hmm. for me, it was more just being the fifth of seven kids and wanting to stand out and wanting to be really good at things. And it it started more as like this pure desire to, to just be a good human. Um, Mm -hmm. But really it, it, it was a big lack of sense of self and, and just recognizing we can pick up the cues all around us. We know what it takes to get those, those blue ribbons and those A pluses and those check marks and those pats on the back from people. Nobody sat me down and told me I had to be good at those things like grades and extracurricular and, um, anything to do with, I was a ballerina and, and health, like everything was all, it was all encompassing, but I could pick it all up. I knew I right. could find the signs. I knew what the targets were and I could hit them. So, you know, I wish I could say there was more to it, but that's it. But you bring up such a good point, which is that, yes, I think there are certainly circumstances where there's like this, like very intense and loud message that then, you know, this event happens or this like big thing mm-hmm. or this thing you can really put your finger on that says, okay, here, here's the trauma and it turned into this, right? But actually, I think more commonly, it's it's the implicit messages that we're getting all around us. Like you mentioned ballet and like you mentioned good grades and you might not have someone sitting you down being like, you need to be the best ballet uh, dancer in your group. You need to get all A's or you're not going to, you know, this will be the consequence, right? It's implicit. It's these like subtle subliminal messages that say, Good things happen if you are top of your class. Good things are going to happen if you you get more, you get benefits. We have so many of these sort of reward structures built in. You don't need to make them explicit. They're so in, in, embedded into our society that like kids are pretty good at figuring out like this is this is very rewarded to focus on this. Mm-hmm. And I would say I was extremely rewarded. Um, I feel like I was really um, admired and looked up to and held as an example for other kids in my neighborhood and, you know, all of that good stuff. But, you know, when I crashed and burned in my early 20s, I got the reverse of that reward. You know, when I realized that that, that achievement, that sense of self that I was 
you know, placing on my outcomes, it came at a high cost and it was a cost I couldn't keep paying. And for me, that meant I, I had eating disorders that not just one, you know, plural and alongside that suicidal ideation that, you know, really was a life and death situation for me. And it was really kind of hard to actually go, you know, take my recovery seriously and realize that that meant I was also losing people's praise and admiration because mm-hmm. I thought the only way I could achieve and grow and do things came at that cost. I couldn't pay anymore. And so it, it took a, a big hit to my identity in that way too, because my identity was still based on outcomes, but now it became on the lack of outcomes. And that was just mm-hmm. as damaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you're, you know, you mentioned like how, when you became more aware of this reality, like this is mm-hmm. perfectionism, even if it's not high achieving, the identity being tied to the outcomes. Mm -hmm. It's like you said, I think you painted a very, really beautiful picture of like how it really is. It's like, it's the, I can, it's the doing everything or doing nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, The feeling is that like, I can't possibly, like I have so many people who I work with who are really stuck. They're actually really stuck and stalled in their ability to get momentum and do and like initiate and engage. And when I sort of like suggest to them, you know, I think this is really perfectionistic. They're like, so what? (laughs) Like that, I don't qualify. But yeah, it's, I think it's, it is two sides of the same coin. It is. And, you know, that's what's um, really interesting about this whole experiment that I've been on for now almost eight years is, um, Instead of trying to do all and instead of staying stuck in the nothing, my goal was to just do something. And Mm -hmm. that weirdly took a lot of courage, especially in a world where we largely just see people's outcomes or even lack thereof. And we don't know what it looks like in between and how getting somewhere that you want actually requires a ton of failure. It requires a ton of mess. It also requires a lot of self-compassion, not shame that perfectionism really gets its energy and its juice from. It's such a different way of growing and being. But I think when, when the women that I've worked with have the courage to to, to do something, to be messy, to do the small things, to believe that small steps lead to big change. Eventually, they they see that the change happens, but it also happens in ways that are both sustainable and way more exponential than they could have otherwise um, gotten to. Like I have grown way more as I've leaned into progress, not perfection, than I ever did when I was the all or nothing version Hmm. Yeah. And it's so funny because I, whenever I talk to someone about like on the podcast, like something about helping parents discover aspects of themselves that like they can heal. Um, it's always in my head, like I, it's like I'm looking at a hall of mirrors because it's always in my head. I'm like, well, this would help. This would apply to the way we engage with our kids to build the same skills. Right. So it's like, you're talking about how your journey to, view reframe this as how do i how do i fail and see that as 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 success yes. in progress right mm-hmm. how do i get out of this all or nothing thinking how do i give myself permission to like be in an uncomfortable state of unfinished right in in action those are the same things that as parents we can do with our children to help sort of prophylactically prevent against perfectionism or having an identity that's highly driven in outcomes. And so it's like, there's so many parallels. That's why I say it's it's like a hall of mirrors, right? Like each reflection just keeps going and going and going. And I think there are a lot of parallels. So like, how do we approach our own parenting yeah. So that we don't feel pressure to have this perfect parent experience because that's not healthy for us. But then in doing that, what are we transferring onto our kids to help prevent them mm-hmm. from getting this passed down, basically? So let's take the first part. How do we approach parenting with progress in mind, not perfection? And let's just let's just level that this is like th- these are the highest stakes we will ever have. You know, raising these humans is no small feat and it's no small responsibility. Like it really, really matters. 
And because of those stakes being so high and because we love our children so dearly and want to do right by them, it's really easy to fall into these perfectionistic traps as parents, starting with how we parent period, just how we (laughs) accidentally said something wrong, or we used the wrong tone of voice, or we were sarcastic when we really shouldn't have been to maybe some bigger mistakes. Like when we've shouted at our kids or thrown something across a room, I don't know if you've had a really bad day like that before, you know, so it's that kind of stuff, but then it's also how we can make mistakes as a parent when we place our identity on our kids, when we require them to act as the proof that we are good parents. Mm -hmm. And that is too heavy of a burden for our children to carry. It really is just too heavy. And I think does so much damage. So I think the biggest thing, if we're going to hit both sides of that first coin there with, in terms of parenting, parenting, The biggest thing is learning how to navigate both how you parent and the mistakes you make as a parent and also how you place your identity, hopefully not on your kids, is to have self-compassion for starters. Like the biggest dose of self-compassion you can possibly muster and you can grow in this. You can learn it. It's a skill to have self-compassion. It doesn't have to come innately inside you. And that Mm -hmm. will help you ride these these waves of you're going to make a mistake (laughs) as sure as there's death and taxes, you're going to make mistakes as parents and multiple times a day. So you got to learn how to ride that wave with self-compassion, not so that you excuse yourself from the mistakes. That's not Mm self-compassion and not so that you just guilt yourself into not just having this shame driven way of parenting that also is like this anxiety based way of parenting. That's not healthy for your kids either. It's more of being able to own your mistakes because you know, you will make them Mm -hmm. and in the process of owning them better repair than you ever could when you're doing it from a place of shame. And that's huge. And the second part to this is Having a sense of self that is separate from your children. A lot of moms, when they hear that, their alarm bells go off, right? Because they're like, no, my identity is a mom. And I'm going to admit like, yeah, like that's one of the first things I'd probably say about myself. If someone wanted to know, tell me about you. Oh, I'm a mom of five kids. My children are everything. But at the same time, they are not who I am. Mm -hmm. Instead, I need to be able to bring Monica, myself, to my children. I am not my responsibilities. I am not my, my roles. I'm not my kids. Mm -hmm. I'm Monica. And doing that is what will help me not place my identity off of them. Now I'll have to tell you, I'm sorry, I'm talking so much here, but, uh, three of my kids have special needs and my oldest is autistic. She has a couple other special needs and I have uh, two other boys with ADHD and you know this well, just in your professional experience, I'm sure as a parent too, that, you know, each of them are so different and each of them, if I placed my identity on how they were behaving, I would deem myself the crappiest parent ever because <laughs> I mean, my, my five-year-old just spit on my face at, at church on mm-hmm. Sunday, much to the, I'm sure, enjoyment of half the congregation that got to see him while I carried him outside of the giant room. And, you know, I am so glad that I am now 12 years into parenting and I could take that moment and take a deep breath, which I most Mm -hmm. certainly had to do while Mm -hmm. I was carrying him out and gently set him down on the couch and know that I needed to take a few minutes before I came back to him to talk to him about his behavior because it wasn't about me being embarrassed about what other people thought of my parenting. Mm-hmm. that was huge. That was a big moment of clarity for me to see how yeah. far I've come. Cause yeah, yeah, it was embarrassing and I did not enjoy that experience. I also don't think it's okay that he spat in my face, but at the same time in that moment, that was a big way for me to gauge just how far I've come. Cause I could see like, mm-hmm. well, that wasn't fun, but I know how to love this kid. And I know what mm-hmm. I can do next as a parent to help him walk through this behavior because I know who he is deep down and I know who I am and who he is right now is not a reflection. And this behavior is not really a reflection of either of us, to be honest. So how can we deal with this better? Yeah, that is so 
first of all, it's so amazingly impressive and like beautiful. Like I get chills hearing that story because I think it's every parent's worst nightmare. And also it's really common, like really, 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 really common. And I think we have, this is, I think goes along with perfectionism is like, there's this illusion when you have this sort of perfectionistic view of the world and of yourself in the world is I am the only one who would ever fail at this. Hmm. Like, you know, whereas in reality, one, we're not failing because like you said, like, this is just a moment. It's a tough moment. It doesn't define who either of us are. It doesn't define the quality of our relationship. It doesn't really tell much about anything other than the state of his nervous system in that moment, right? Yes. And it allows you to then tune out the noise that's definitely potentially coming in from the glares in, you know, that space. Because most people in our society, again, we live in a society that does value, quote, perfect behavior, Mm -hmm. (laughs) whether it's achievable or not, it's valued. And so when we see less than perfect behavior, a lot of people judge it. And so we, as the parent, actively fighting against our internal critic and the external critics that are real, they're legit real, to sort of block out that noise and be able to say, what's my bigger priority here? I got to help my kid get through this moment with some integrity, with yeah. some sense of safety. And then, yeah, we'll address the behavior, but not now. He's not mm. going to learn anything right now. He's dysregulated. Like, there's no point. I could waste my time teaching him not to do this right now, but it would be wasting my time. What is my better, what's the best and highest use of my time right now? That's really, really hard to get there. Like, that's a very exceptionally special place to be in parenting. We've had a lot of practice. I feel like <laughs> we're we're a family of professional meltdowners and and, and that's okay. And and yeah. you know, that regulation piece, I mean, that has changed every part of our family. But you know what was so fascinating to me? One of my kids got um a diagnosis of um trauma to the brain development, which you know is not under the the actual codes, right? So it's yeah. it was like more, okay, so that's really what's going on here. But what we're going to give him is a surface level diagnosis of ADHD. And he was almost diagnosed mm-hmm. with like everything else in the book. And when she told me about this and she taught me about the nervous system and regulation, the best and worst part of what she told me is in order to help him learn his brain, learn how to regulate, because he was in a perpetual state of dysregulation, um, in order for him to learn regulation, Monica, you have to arrive to working with him regulated. And that meant I had to do the work, <laughs> which mm-hmm. wasn't fun, but also life changing. And I can tell you, it's really hard to get some special needs diagnoses when you, when a lot of it can be back to, well, what, what did they go through or what kind of environment were they in? And you're like, I was doing the best we could. And I thought I, I loved him and I would took care of his needs and, and, you know, but having a special needs sibling can be a tumultuous enough of an environment that where his brain just doesn't learn how to stay regulated, you know? So I had to mm-hmm. also remove my identity from that piece too. Like I, I, I know I was a good parent, but this is where we're at. And so now I can, I can meet him where we're at instead of navigating from a place of resentment or fear. Mm-hmm. I'm sure anxiety was definitely there. I was going to say, or anxiety, but no, like those things were, those were a part of the puzzle, but they weren't leading everything. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that it's interesting, you know, whether, because I can see this same scenario playing out with kids who might not even meet criteria for like special needs, but they're just tough kids. Yeah. And I think if you go beyond that, like, you know, end of the bell curve and you keep going like with, you know, kids who have neurodivergent brains or like are on the autism spectrum, or maybe you have kids who have ADHD or like, you know, something even less well explained, right? It's more mm-hmm. ambiguous. It doesn't really even have a diagnosis. We have to kind of make it yeah. up, right? Because mm-hmm. I work with a lot of families actually that it's like the DSM diagnoses, I could give you one of them, yeah, but I don't actually think it's describing wholly mm-hmm what it is that we're seeing. Like there's more complexity here than that. Those are really hard experiences for parents to go through because there isn't a rule book. There isn't a 
a pill you take. There isn't a, you know, oh, well, we'll just do this thing and it will get better. It's like, no, this is just the kid that we have. And like, we blame ourselves or we go through this grief process, which is very legitimate and very real. And also like, we still have this child right here who needs us. And so this, this message you got from the person you were working with that said, you have to arrive to your work with him regulated, like that is a really powerful message and empowering too, because it puts the, it gives you something to work with. You can control you. Oh yeah. And you know what else is fascinating is because I, I was so lucky to have done a lot of this work myself and to like recognize that in order to truly grow, I had to focus on progress, not perfection. I had to apply all of those things that I learned with my son. It took us a good six months before we even began to see any shifts in his behavior. And I'm talking about, he was, um, this was during 2020, 2021. So I was homeschooling all of them. Um, we had moved for our autistic daughter in the middle of, at the beginning of the pandemic actually. And so they were going through a lot and, um, it was an all day, all, all day, every day kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. I could not see any progress. And I mean, I was doing everything our whole, all of our lives revolved around him. And one of the things that he kept saying to me, because he didn't like it either. Like he didn't like where he was at. You know, he kept, Mm -hmm. he was a seven-year-old at the time. He's like, this is not working. This is not working. Like when we were trying to work on deep breathing and like calming down the regulation, like he Mm -hmm. would scream, this isn't working. And now he's a 10 year old that takes deep breaths whenever he's getting worked up and he Mm -hmm. walks away or he tells me how he's feeling or he, he goes and plays with those Legos or goes and, uh, hits his drum set. I don't even know what the right (laughs) word is, but the drum set, we got that just so he can like bang away. Right. Uh And the changes have been miraculous, but it was only because we were both willing to believe in the process that small wins build over time, that even if it looked like we were not making progress, we were. Mm -hmm. And not only were we, it was happening in ways that were so small, so seemingly insignificant, but also so deep that the, the changes over time have been nothing short of miraculous, but it took a heck of a lot of time and patience and compassion on all sides. That's so beautiful. And like, it's interesting. Like it's, it's so funny how these things are paralleled, right? Like I often will use this metaphor with parents. First of all, I'm so frustrating with the parents that I work with. Cause I'm like kind of doing what I'm imagining the person you were working with was doing is like, just do this thing. It doesn't feel like it's working, but just keep doing it. Just yes. do it. Just do it anyway. Do it when you don't feel like it's working. Just keep going. And they're like, stop. It's not working. And I'm like, it's the yeah. long game. Just trust. And like the reality is, is the way I describe that process is like when you plant a seed in the mm-hmm. ground and you put every day a drop of water on it, a drop of water on it, a drop of water on it, a drop of water, like you aren't seeing the plant right? You, but if you didn't water it, if you didn't put that drop of water on it, you'd never see the plant, right? Mm -hmm. But if you drop the water and you trust that eventually, if I keep doing this, it's going to hit this sort of tipping point, this, this sort of like developmental threshold where, oh, hey, here comes the shoot and it's poking out of the grass. And now you can see just the tiniest little piece of evidence that maybe this actually is working. And then I keep doing it and I do it and I do it and I trust in this process and I give myself a hell of a lot of grace because you have to wait so long. But eventually you see this like flower bloom and I don't, I'm under no, I don't want to like I don't want to mess with parents' expectations. Like sometimes it can take a very long time Mm -hmm. till you see the fruits of your labor, (laughs) but it really is worth it to focus on this sort of slow and steady strengthening of the regulation systems and the trust in the relationship and the ability. And and you do that by the self-regulation and the being willing to just do the process and not necessarily be so focused on the outcome, which in our minds is a well-regulated, good, you know, behaving child that can follow directions and, you know, participate and cooperate and engage with our family or with school or whatever. 
That is the outcome. But if we are focused only on the outcome, we miss this ability to be in this very messy place for a while until we can sort of move towards that outcome. And you know, that, that co-regulation piece that you brought up, I really think also mirrors modeling and modeling what it looks like to grow and to change. And, and I mean, that's the second half of the, the question I haven't answered for you. I, I apologize. I got off track there a bit, but when we are trying to help our kids not become perfectionists, or when we can see that we have some anxious kiddos or some kids who are a little bit more predisposed to um, wanting to you know, for good intentions, just be really good. And you can see that they are banking their identity off their outcomes. And maybe they're standing on the sidelines because they're too scared to try, or maybe they're so shame driven and so hard on themselves. Honestly, it comes back to the biggest thing you can do to help them is your own behavior, your own modeling to them. And it can be as simple as pointing out when you make a mistake, not just with parenting, but with other areas of your life. It can be um, as transparent as saying, oh, I was working on this thing and I totally didn't get my goal. And that was not fun, but I'm going to keep trying or I'm going to pivot. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to tweak my plan. And I keep thinking about, I have this friend um, who started running marathons the last few years. Mm -hmm. And this past year, she really involved her kids in her training process. So she would let them know the night before, like how many miles she was going to run the next day. And then when she would get back, she would let them know how it went. And she would share the ups and downs of her training. And the race day came and my husband was actually running the same race. And uh, so I got to see her recap after but on the race day, she had, I think, about four miles left, and she crashed and burned. And she was so close to her goal, but she could tell she wasn't going to quite make it. And so she called her husband and, you know, was crying to him while running, you know, like as you do probably in <laughs> those marathons. And um, the most beautiful thing happened, though, and it's as she was approaching her family, her daughter came and ran the last stretch with her. And that moment was such a beautiful moment for my friend, even though she was just shy of meeting her goal. And to me, I thought that's not just an even though, like that's the best thing you could have modeled for your daughter. That one, you went for something, you worked hard for something, you achieved something. And even though it wasn't exactly what you wanted, she got to literally do it alongside you and see what it takes to try and to sometimes fail or to do it messy and to keep trying anyway. And I know that's a longer story to share, but that really is what this is all about. If you want to help your kids not navigate their lives from perfectionism, start with modeling, modeling what it really looks like to grow and to change and to spiral up in our lives and how it can be mm -hmm. messy and painful, but how we believe in the process that small ones build over time. Yeah. And that picture I have of like this mother, you know, finishing this last leg of her marathon with her daughter yeah. It makes me really think back to what you were saying before of like when you were like really shifting your relationship to perfectionism, the most impact it had was on your relationships. And I think yes. that's really poignant, right? Like this is an illustration of exactly why that is the case, right? Because when we're super stuck in perfectionism, we're really, we've got like blinders on to everything but our goal. Yeah. And that usually means also the people in our lives mm -hmm. and like this mom's ability to not be so laser focused on this one, huh. you know, random goal that she just kind of got stuck on and mm -hmm. look at this larger goal of like, look at this connection that I'm building. Look at this relationship I have, this child I'm raising, you know, and that's like, oh, hey, look, I've got a million goals in life. And so it's like when we can let go of the sort of blinders and the narrow focus on like this one thing that we really think needs to be perfect to like, oh, I can zoom out and look at everything, including my relationships. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, but I'm meeting all these other goals. Mm -hmm. And I'm it's feeling a bigger connected. Picture. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just the long view, like you, you talked about with helping your, your clients. It's also having that bigger picture in mind too, of what life really is about. And it, and it really is those relationships. And that is what has helped me as I've tried to navigate. Well, like uh, most of my kids, I can't 
parent in traditional ways that I see all of my siblings parenting their children or my neighbors or my friends. It doesn't work for me to just tell them to do something or to immediately have like this consequence because they're dysregulated or um, my daughter gets really overwhelmed sensory wise. And, you know, some of my kids are like, why doesn't she have to do this chore that we have to do? And it's, you know, trying to explain, well, because that is really difficult for her to scrub the toothpaste in a sink. Like that is extremely hard for her, you know, just having those differences. And I, I think what helps is, is, is again, like we just talked about having the bigger picture that what matters is not how other people perceive my parenting, not how I can even compare my own parenting journey to other people, but how I know what really matters is that I love this kid, that they feel safe, that they feel loved and that we are working on things together. That's everything. That's everything. And and you know, what's interesting. I think that's probably everybody's like if you were to pull yep. a thousand parents, whether they have a child who fits right down the middle of that bell curve or is on any end, you know, like outlier or norm, like we all really, I think if we really examine what our goals are in parenting, they're, ex- I would say 999 out of those thousand parents would say something about similar to what you just said, right? I want to make a, I want to raise a child who feels loved, who feels safe, who mm-hmm. knows how to work towards something, right? We're working on mm-hmm. something together. I feel supported in achieving a goal. You know, that's parenting. That's the, and like, sometimes I think we get, we, we miss the forest through the trees. Like we get stuck on like, well, it's supposed to be this outcome. They're supposed to be able to do A or B or not mm-hmm. do C. and you know, maybe, but maybe that's an outcome of a different, you know, a different process. Maybe we have to re-examine how we're trying to get to A, B, or C. Oh, I agree. You know, I was just thinking as you were saying that, like, I think we all agree that what parenting was really about, but it's sure easy to forget that when nobody will get their dang shoes on and get in the car. (laughs) Yes. You know, like, it's so easy to forget. And to me, I feel like, gosh, if I were to really just put a few words, what parenting is, it's keeping the big picture in mind, especially in the small moments when it's really easy to forget. It's just being aware of when we're drifting, because that's the thing. I, I, I've talked so much today about like how miraculous it is that we've made so many changes and, and grown and done better and all of that. But you know what? I get dysregulated too. I, I snap or I get mad over something dumb after a full day of holding it together over things that were way bigger. And if we're going to be good parents, we have to be able to just be aware of when we're drifting, repair, and get back to the heart of why we are parents in the first place and why we are sticking with this massive responsibility and building these relationships. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. Cause I think we started this conversation talking about how we want, we want to help parents not look at parenting from a perfectionistic lens, but then we're also sort of saying, here's the optimal we we might be re yeah. uh, what's the word we might be re, reorienting parents to a different goal. Right. Like mm-hmm. let's like, yes, I think it's helpful to say we don't need to like focus on perfect behaviors and a perfectly well-behaved and well-regulated child at all times. If that's our goal in parenting, we can be, we're going to feel like thwarted all the time. Mm. But just as important as not making that our goal is also not saying my goal is to like, you know, always be the Zen parent who can like co-regulate at all times and be okay when my child has meltdowns because I understand that it's, you know, sometimes out of their control. Like that's also perfectionistic, right? We can go to the extreme in that place too, which is so good to point out. Yeah. And I know, and that's funny because sometimes, I mean, I get on myself because like, Monica, you know better, like, especially when my, my daughter, she's a hard time sleeping at night. And, you know, when I'm finally drifting off and she comes in our room to ask a really random question about something she's anxious about, you know, and it's been like the 20th time we talked about it that night. And I just like, go to bed, (laughs) go to bed, go to bed. We'll talk about this existential crisis in the morning. And then, you know, I roll over and think, oh crap, there goes a whole day of me trying to be that safe space for her that she can like share her anxieties. And there I go, just dismissing him. 
oh, if I'm navigating all my parenting experience from that all or nothing judgment of who I am and how I am as a parent, then we're always going to lose too. So yes, thank you for making that space to help us see like, we're not going to be perfect at being imperfect parents with grace (laughs) and compassion and love. It's, this is all part of it. It is. And like, I always say, like, I do think parents have a lot of anxiety in part because of the messaging. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, as someone in the parenting space that both consumes parenting content and creates parenting content, I'm really, really mindful. I'm, I'm sure I fail at it plenty, but I'm mindful of trying to share information without adding to the anxiety that parents already have and making them feel like there is this gold standard and this is what it should look like. And why aren't you here? Why, why haven't you figured out how to do this? And I think that's so dangerous because no parent is ever going to be like that. And, and I always like, I'm trying to self-disclose a lot on the podcast and even with my clients, like I lose it with my kids. I have really crappy days where we're like, we're dialing it in. We are yep. going to order, you know, you know, we're going to have takeout three times today or, you know, frozen food three times today. And we're watching four movies and that's just the day because that's the day. And I'm just, and I do, and I, not only do I do that sometimes, but I also not even good at not beating myself up for that. Like, (laughs) so I will do that thing. And then I will be like, God, I'm such a bad parent. I'm so dialing it in and I'm so bad. So like I do the thing that is quote, you know, dialing it in parenting. And then I beat myself up for dialing it in. It's just, we're human beings. Mm -hmm. We aren't not getting it right all the time. And we're not supposed to, and our kids don't need us to. My kids are just fine. In fact, they love those dial it in days. (laughs) They're living their best life on movie number four. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I just, I think it's important. Like even someone who's like, I really don't want parents to think that I a parenting support specialist, you know, know all the secrets and can do them all the time. It's like, I might know what they are, but I definitely can't follow them. I always am like, you know, more often than you don't shoot for 51% of the time. Probably and they, have, they have literal research on that, right? Is it the Gottman Institute? Like that mm-hmm. shows that you just have to get it right. Like a, a way lower number than you ever yeah. think. You're like, whoa, yeah. what? Like that's enough. And it is true. There's, you know, there's research on attachment that says like attunement, oh, okay. like miss, if you misattune, parents who misattuned to their children uh, versus attuned, right, got, got the attunement accurate and could accurately meet the need. It was something like I've seen as low as like 54% of the time or even lower maybe like and still had a secure attachment. Like it was still predictive of secure attachment. Huh. Like we don't, we're not supposed to get it right all the time at all. I'm so glad you said that to me because <laughs> I, I have been worried about this. I was telling my husband this yesterday. I'm like, I worry about our, our baby. We, you know, we had four and then five years later we had our fifth and it's been a huge adjustment and we really wanted him and we're so glad he's here. But like, I'm always worried about him learning to be dysregulated because our environment can be pretty chaotic or like mm-hmm. I'm holding him and I have a moment. You know, like we talked about, you're holding it together and then you have one moment over a dumb thing. And I like yell at a kid and then I look down and I see the baby looking up at me to try mm-hmm. to see like, what, how am I supposed to be reacting or feeling right now? I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. We're all okay. <laughs> you know, I just worry about it. And that is a good comfort to me. That's a good reminder that even just being aware of it, you talk about being mindful. Mm-hmm. That's that's like 90% of the battle. Just being aware mm-hmm. of just trying. If you're trying, you're doing a good job. If you're yeah. trying, you're doing it right. And for the record, if there's an expert I want to learn from, it's someone like you who's going <laughs> to model that this looks messy. Yeah. And it's the awareness and the trying that matters more than anything else. Yeah. I, so I mean, I really appreciate that. that. And I'm, I feel the same way in terms of like, who do I want? I want, I want that too. Like, I don't want, I want to learn from people who, who tell it like it is, mm-hmm. you know, I, if I think about the people who I've sought out as mentors in my professional life and my personal life, they've all been people who like pull the curtain back a little bit. I don't yes. like it when people, you know, I personally don't, I'm not drawn to like teachers who like mm-hmm. to be on the pedestal because I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know if I could trust this. Are you sure? Oh, I you- feel the same way. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even down to like a therapist I had once that just like, just to never know exactly like to never have that. I know we have, you have to be careful as a professional. I do know that. So I know there's probably lots of professionals listening. Like you got to have that healthy balance. But like when I never knew what was going on or what was normal or if it was okay to like have a moment to never have a personal example or a story as part of how they were trying Mm -hmm. to teach me things like that made it really hard for me to really with her. But then when I had a therapist who would share like a personal application, you know, with good boundaries still, you know, that is what changed me. That is what helped me know that I, okay, there's hope for me too. Yeah. No, I I mean, I, I practice like, so the therapy that I'm trained in really is like relational psychodynamic psychotherapy, which is, you know, it's kind of more rooted in like psychoanalysis and like that Freud. So Freudian that sort of Freudian psychoanalytic model is very like the therapist is this like blank slate. And the idea is like the patient can project onto the therapist anything. So you don't want to interfere with that process by being anything other than a blank slate. But I actually think, you know, that, that psychoanalytic model evolved into psychodynamic psychotherapy, which is a lot more about the dynamic in the relationship between the patient and the therapist and then there's like kind of an even further development of that with relational psychotherapy where it's like, no, we're going to examine our relationship in the therapy. And so mm-hmm. I have to show up. I have to, I'm not going to like, you know, show up like, like you said, without boundaries. Like I'm not going to yeah. like complain to you about the fight I had with my husband. Right. But I'm right. going to, but if you bring up a, a, a feeling about something, I'm going to share my, my my emotional response to that. I'm going to say, oh, that mm-hmm. really elicited this in me. Like, I wonder what mm. that's like. So it's like, you have to be able to be in the room. You have to be in relationship with someone. And I think that type of therapy is so helpful. And it's interesting because now that I think about it, that's what I do with parents with their children. Yeah. Like I help parents show up in a relational way with their child and say like, let's look at our relationship. And maybe if my kid's little, I'm not going to like articulate all this, but I'm going to in the back of my mind be thinking about what is their experience of me? How are we in a relationship and how do I use that relationship to improve what's happening in the family system? Brilliant. Yeah. Sign me up. That's, that's (laughs) kind of help. I'm going to want and look out for well, it sounds like the way you've described the work that you've been doing with your f- child and like, it, it sounds a lot like what I would do. So my guess is it's probably pretty, like who, who did you, what was the work that you did? Oh gosh. So I don't know all the acronyms <laughs> that go with the different counselors. I'll just say we've seen about everyone and everything, but having the right counselor who just had this kind of feeling about them is all I can really pinpoint of someone mm-hmm. who had the science, had the background, especially in regulation. Cause that was all new to me in 2020. I never heard of that word ever. And it's only been mm-hmm. the past year that I've noticed it being used out, you know, outside of my own little world that I kept trying to mm-hmm. tell like every parent I knew who was struggling with their kids. Have you heard of regulation? Have you heard about the nervous system? You know, anyway, yeah. so she had the science and the, and the, the training, but all I know is that she more had, um, the method, you know, mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and the guidance on helping me get there in a way that I didn't lose hope or also blame myself that it wasn't, we weren't changing overnight. Yeah. No, that, we, we, have, so we have important. a great, you know, acceptance and commitment therapist right now too, and cognitive therapy, therapy and all the therapies. Yeah. I love that. I love ACT and mm-hmm. which is acceptance and commitment therapy. And we joke that we like, I'm, so my group, practice, my partner and I at the practice, like we're, we're trained very similarly and we're both like, yeah, we're psychodynamic and relational, but we we sprinkle in all of the acronyms. Like we, yes. we, we, that's our, that's our seasonings, right? This, the CBT and the ACT and the DBT and the, you know, and that's what I look all, for, right? I look for people who have more than just one method. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting though, because I didn't learn about the nervous system stuff in grad school yeah. to become a clinical psychologist. I learned about that afterwards because it is newer. And like, I'm not, okay. I, you know, God, I went, I started graduate school in 2009. So it wasn't even like that long ago, but even in 2009, they were not teaching about polyvagal theory. They were not teaching about the nervous system. They mm-hmm. were at least, and my grad program was pretty progressive. Um, so it's interesting, right? Like these are newer concepts, interpersonal neurobiology. Um, 
these are things that like are becoming more mainstream now, but like it's really only been like the last 10 years that we've been the psychology and the research moves into the mainstream at like a glacial pace. And I think that's that's changing now a little bit, but. I was going to say that. That's what our counselor said too. She's like, one day this probably will be, she's like, it it will be like, this is the diagnosis, but for now it's not there yet. So, Mm -hmm. but we have decades of research behind it. Mm-hmm. And and that is what helped me, especially like when I went on Google after and was like, are we like seeing someone who <laughs> is making words up and <laughs> making me think things that aren't true? But no. Yeah. No, it's legit. It's very, very, very research based. It's just that. Yes. It takes a long time. It takes a long time. And it's it's crazy because 20, you know, 10, 20 years worth of research. And that's considered new in our field. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. It's, what what most people are using as like a baseline is actually like 50, 60, mm-hmm. 80 years old. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to change the sort of zeitgeist that's been in like sort of crystallized from old stuff. But I do think I'm really hopeful that these new ideas are becoming more accessible to people. Yeah. And but, from someone who's just like, a you know, outside of that world professionally, I can tell you it is like, I'm hearing moms talk about it at the school pickup or, you know, my friends mentioning it. I was like, Oh, what? This isn't, yay. it wasn't just me who knew about this stuff now. It's so great. So keep, yeah. keep being the pioneer that you're being. <laughs> well, thank you. And if people want to follow your work, if they are like, Oh gosh, you know, everything you're describing, I do. I, I, I might be a perfectionist and I would like to learn yeah. more about how to like, reframe this and gain some, some insight into this. Like how can people work with you? How, you know, obviously check out your podcast for sure about progress. Yes. That's the number one place because that's where most of my heart and soul goes. I'm also on Instagram at about progress. We have a great community there. Um, and I would say where you are this person, for parenting. I'm that person for personal development, meaning if they Mm -hmm. want someone who's going to be real and, but not in a way where they're just trying to be vulnerable so that you will like get manipulated by their, their (laughs) sales tactics or anything like that. No, this is more like we talk about growing and personal development, but not with toxic positivity, not with prescriptions, mm-hmm. not with shame, not like you're doing it wrong because I'm so amazing and I'm going to preach at you and you're going to feel mm-hmm. like crap every time you hear me talk. It's not that. It's way different. And that's what I adore about my work is kind of being a pioneer in the personal development industry because just like any industry out there, there's a lot of there's a lot of messed up things, a lot of messed up people and teaching yeah. things and, and and mostly because they thrive off of certainty. And that's a whole other discussion we can have and the black and white <laughs> thinking there. But I'll just say it's been an amazing work and an amazing journey. And I'm so grateful that I get to be a part of it. I'm so grateful you shared all this with us. This has been so amazing and wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the time. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, I want to hear from you. Share your thoughts and your feedback with me by scrolling down to the ratings and review section on your Apple podcast app or whatever app you're listening on. And let me know what you think of this episode or the show in general. Your support means the absolute world to me. And just a simple tap of five stars can make a real impact in how this show gets reached by parents everywhere. So thank you so much for listening and don't be a stranger.